Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show, where we talk about the crossroads of the environment and our health with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And as we know, Sherry Edwards is off working on the SoundHealthPortal.com. I'd suggest going to the SoundHealthPortal.com, scrolling down at the bottom past all the goodies that you think, oh, I must see this, I must watch this now. Just scroll to the bottom, find the tab that says videos, click on that tab, pick a video that's of interest to you, and what that tab will be, what that demonstration will be, is a live workup of Sherry doing a webinar online with a volunteer who wants to have their voice worked on. So you'll see the process of the intake, which is a recording of the person's voice, about 90 seconds to two minutes recording of their voice. And that gets run through the software and to break it down into the bits and bytes that then get processed through the particular package that the person wants to look at. See everything from fibromyalgia to stem cells to, and or biodiet, which is a bigger program, which looks at everything that interacts in the body and often comes down to looking at the methylation cascade which is how everything fires and interacts. And much like what Judas Schwartz is going to talk about, how it's all a system. And that's what the methylation cascade is, where everything bumps into something else to create the next thing that goes to the next thing. And if something's out of place, it's kind of like, wait, I can't get there from here. That's all at soundhealthportal.com. And then after you watch the video, then you can go back there, scroll up to the top and look at the current campaigns, which are current free programs that you can run your voice through, sign up for free membership, pick your campaign, and then the system will walk you through submitting your voice and you'll get a recording back in two to six hours, typically. And then I would recommend sitting down with a cup of tea, reviewing that information. And then if you have a practitioner that you work with, chiropractor, acupuncturist, naturopathic doctor, homeopath, take that to them and talk to them and say, we're working on this. What do you think about this? That's all at soundhealthportal.com. To hear and share replays of the show, about 15 to 30 minutes after you hear the outro music, go to talktomeguy.com, just like it sounds, all words, talktomeguy.com. Scroll down that page, and you'll see this show there, and as they say, about 20 to 30 minutes after we end. There, you just looked the other day, there are now 396 shows there, which is a lot to view. There's a microphone at the bottom of each page. And if you want to leave me a message regarding a question for the guest or a clarification or some link that I didn't put in, because I will add all the links that we talk about or that Judith mentions during the show, I'll put all those in the show notes. And you can leave me a message and say, what about this? What about that? Could we have more of this? And that's all at talktomeguy.com. With that, Judith D. Schwartz is an author who tells stories to explore and illuminate scientific concepts and cultural nuance. She takes a clear-eyed look at global, environmental, economic, and social challenges and finds insights and solutions in natural systems. She writes her numerous publications, including The American Prospect, The Guardian, Discover, Scientific American, and Yale E360. She's the author of Cows Save the Planet, Water in Plain Sight, and the Reindeer Chronicles and other inspiring stories of working with nature to heal the earth. Judy has a BA from Brown University, an MSJ from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, and an MA in Counseling Psychology from Northwestern. She lives and works on the side of a mountain in Vermont with her husband, author Tony Aperl, and cherishes visits from their musician son, Brendan. When it snows, she cross-country skis, and when ski season is over, she's in the garden. Three times a week, she trains in Uechi Ryu Karate and has reached the rank of Shodan. Whatever she's doing, she will stop to listen to the song of the hermit thrush. Judith joins us to talk about water in plain sight, hope for a thirsty world. Welcome, Judith. Well, thank you so much. I want to start out with a short review on one of the sites. A call to expand our thinking to include plants and animals as part of the planet's water cycle, and further to emphasize water in solutions to rebalance nature and save us from ourselves by Waterkeepers Magazine. 
you talk about water as a verb. Would you talk about that, please? Because you have that view of water. Okay, yeah. So often we think of water as a noun, um, as water as a thing. So, so, so much water is in X place, but the people in Y place want it, so they fight about it. But it's so important to understand that water isn't static. And in part because it's in those water processes that drive so much ecology, including climate. So, you know, I'll just like pop in there, um, you know, just say one thing that, you know, was fascinating to me and has been incredibly mobilizing for me is that if we stop to think about how the earth manages heat, well, mostly it's through water-based processes. And so once we understand how water works, or at least once we understand that water is working all the time, it is moving through the landscape and through across the landscape and through the atmosphere, we realize how many opportunities we have to ally with natural processes to produce better results for us in a healthier environment. And are there other people that are thinking, I I know you lecture a great deal, are people beginning to think of water as a verb, as an active, I'll call it a being because I don't quite know how to express it, but as an active entity in our lives? Absolutely, people are beginning to think this way. I mean, well, you know, then again, I should say, like, in the circles that I travel, people are thinking this way. So, (laughs) I may, you know, I may have a kind of skewed view, um, you know, because of the conversations I'm in. But I have a book right near me, which is called Water Always Wins (laughs) by Mm. a journalist, an environmental journalist named Erica Gies. And, you know, the wonderful, this fits right into your question because, wait, water wins? Water has agency? Well, actually, it does. Um, Also, there's a water and climate Facebook group that just launched fairly recently on, on, um, you know, on social media and a regenerative water alliance. So conversations are really, really picking up, I would say. Yeah, I I think because when people see the water challenges that we have pretty much everywhere, um, you know, there's hurricane just hit Canada. I I don't, I mean, maybe that's common, but I haven't heard of hurricanes in, um, you know, the eastern coast of Canada. Um, Yeah, water Water is happening right now. You know, lack of water is happening. Too much water is happening. And that raises questions about how we can work with water. So if water always wins, well, let's create a win-win, you know, so it's not water winning at our expense. If we were actually in relationship with water, They'll win, but we'd at least be working with it. I can't form that into a question. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Right. There we go. So, yeah. So when I wrote the book, Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World, I wasn't thinking this way. But then, you know, because when you start researching a book, you haven't – anyway, it's a journey. You kind of carve a path through the material. And what started to fascinate me was specific water processes. So uh, what I did was I looked at all the different stories that I was telling and chose to tell them through water processes. So one very basic process is infiltration, okay? So you want water to stay in the landscape. You want to hold water. And you can cre- we can create the conditions for water to be held in the landscape. And in fact, how nature had organized water and water-land dynamics, water would stay in the landscape. So for an example, beavers 
So, um, you know, if we go back several hundred years, there were tens of millions of beavers in North America, and they would build dams and they would move trees around and vegetation, vegetation, and they would create wetlands and they would slow down water so that it was, so we had kind of hydrated areas, wetland areas all over. So that's one way. And then biodiversity. So, so one thing that was interesting as I was exploring this book is that, you know, the connection between water and biodiversity. So to me, it made sense that the healthier the water cycle, the greater support for biodiversity. And of course, that is the case. But what I also found is that the greater the biodiversity, the healthier the water cycle, because there are all these creatures out there moving in and out of the soil and doing other things, bringing, moving seeds around that creates the conditions for water to stay in the ground. So another way to think about it, and this was pretty interesting to me, is that when we think about water, you know, available water, water that, that we use and depend on, often what we think about is blue water. So that's, well, oceans and lakes and rivers, bodies of water. When, like, when you look at a map and you see blue on it, that's what we were thinking of okay, as what we depend upon. And I can include reservoirs there too. But actually, what is most important for us is green water. That is water that is held in the landscape and in biomass. That's kind of living water, water that is immediately available to living things. So so holding water in the soil gives us more green water. And we can even think about soil as water infrastructure because it's holding the water so that it is, it is available to us. It is supporting plants and animals and microorganisms and yeah, keeping the system going. I'm going to jump to a place I wasn't planning on right now, but we'll get back here. This will make sense in a second. So green water is, is a result of being in relationship with the soil. So what happens when we, I have such a string of bad words about this. What happens when we pave the bejesus out of the planet, when we've just seemed to have gone crazy with paving everything? Parking lots, yards. I went to Sonoma State in the 70s. When I went to Sonoma State, there was nothing around the university. It was built in Runner Park, California. And when I went there originally, there was, it was, you drove out and you thought, where am I going? And then suddenly the university would disappear. Now, decades later, that entire area is surrounded by condos and homes and everything is paved. So how did that change no, no, let me back up to this, back to the paving. We pave everything. It's not permeable. Water runs off. It goes someplace. It wasn't really, I'll put in quotes, meant to go. If we use permeable, semi-permeable paving materials, because there are some things that will actually allow the water to infiltrate through the paving. So it's a twofold question. Are we screwing things up by paving our brains out? And... Is there a way we can still pave and have semi-permeable, or should we just pave less? Yeah, well, I will take the first part first. And absolutely, we are transforming the water cycle. When you you put up a a house, when you put in a parking lot, when you um, put in a road, when you expand a road, you are having an impact on the water cycle and you are specifically you are interrupting that natural relationship between water and the land so 
absolutely water runs off. So people don't really think about pavement roads as having an impact on, on water, but absolutely it does. And yeah, so um, it interrupts the small water cycle. So yeah, there's a really interesting group of Eastern European hydrologists and scientists that have written this incredible book. Actually, it was written in 2007 and it's still like hugely, hugely relevant. And even, you know, people that are reading it now are like are blown away by it, that they talk about just the extent to which we are paving over the planet. So Hmm. there are so many aspects to that. So it's that water runs off and then water like in an urban environment, whatever chemicals are used, um, whatever cleaning materials, everything runs off with that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's really having such a huge impact. And I remember being surprised to hear um, a, a fellow by the name of Zach Weiss. Um, he helps create water retention landscapes which Mm. are so important in a moment when we are finding so many problems with water running off, water not being held in the land. And these are transformative ecologically. So he has a company called Elemental Ecosystems. Anyway, he grew up right near me. So we see each other when he comes home and we were walking around our land and he pointed out that the mere fact of having a house here means that we have degraded the water cycle in this specific environment. You know, and here, because I live on the side of a mountain in Vermont, we have lots of vegetation. I thought, I thought I'd get a pass, but apparently not. So what he said was so interesting. He said that people can enhance the water cycle kind of to make up for the way they've messed it up. So I thought that was really interesting so that anyone with a house, anyone with a driveway almost owes it (laughs) to water (laughs) to Mm -hmm. enhance the water cycle. And that could be by putting in ponds, by putting in a rain garden. There are lots of ways we could do that, which I think is really, really hopeful. So, um, and it's important to know that the health of the soil is so central to all of this because when you enhance the health of the soil and one kind of proxy for soil health can be the percentage of carbon in the soil because that's living matter. Soil organic matter is 58% carbon. So when you enhance the carbon in your soil, you're enhancing the health of the soil. So every 1% increase in soil organic carbon, that means going from 1% to 2% carbon in the soil, or 2% to 3%, or even better, 5% to 6%. That means that 25,000 gallons of water per acre can be held in the soil. That's a lot of green water right there. That means that you can last longer between droughts that you don't need to water as much. It also means that it's that much harder to make a flood because that land is a sponge and can hold more water. Oh, the second part, can we do paving better? Absolutely, truly, I don't know the economics of it. I don't know how much it costs to use semi permeable pavement or sidewalks, but yeah, we certainly can. Well, one thing is that you can, on the sides of sidewalks or on the side of your driveway, you can put plantings in that will hold the water. There's a guy named Brad Lancaster who has books on rainwater harvesting and there are several editions of his book, so I don't, I can't recall exactly which one this was, but I was struck by how many ways 
you can create, you know, you can angle the water on your driveway so that you can hold the water in the landscape and make use of it. So there are all kinds of ways. And, and just one thing about Brad is that he's well known for creating a food forest in uh, by the sidewalk in Phoenix, Arizona. And one thing that he did in Phoenix is that he got the the city council to allow for curb cutting to wow. hold water to to steer the water. So you know that's a no no. You know the curbs are the curbs, and that's city property. But he was able to convince them that that this created a greater good to to do this. So. I mean, it's important to know that even even in the driest years and the driest places, we lose per person a few at least a few thousand of gallons per year of water just because it runs off. And if we wow. make use of that, everything can be transformed. It's a matter of, you know, I often think of the, the permaculture ethic of thinking of scarcity or thinking from a mindset of abundance. Approach this, approach water from a mindset of abundance. We look for, we can look for where there, how we can create abundance. Because I have seen circumstances that, you know, that just, it seems like there's no water, but then you find it. Um, just another example, this is a completely different situation. This was from the chapter that I had um, looking at the water process of condensation. And that's, mm. so that's, okay, yeah, so, so that's when you get clouds and you get precipitation and, and, and all of that. So um, for that chapter, I went to far west Texas which is very, very hot and very, very dry. And I spent several days with a couple. They're now in New Mexico, but, but they had set up shop there. And what they did was they created, they designed a barn that was designed to capture condensation. And hmm. they got all of their water from dew, basically. So I was, I was there in the heat of the summer. I was there in late July. Everybody I met was complaining about the heat, complaining about the lack of water. And here they got water from, from the sky, not from rain, but from the, the heat hitting their roof and that created a temperature differential. And because there's always moisture in the air, even in the driest places, the hot and the cold condensed the moisture, and that ran off through the pipe and into their rain barrels, into their water tank. And I love the story of how in January, one year, several months after the last rain of the season, that they realized that the water tank was overflowing. And they thought, oh my gosh, this is something weird. Maybe something was blocked. But sure enough, um, Mark, Marcus, who um, it's Catherine and Marcus Otmers, who are the people that I visited and I'm still in touch with. Sure enough, Marcus woke up at four in the morning so that he could see what was happening. This is in the cool of the day when you would get that extreme differential. And sure enough, there was a, like a stream of water flowing into that water tank. That's amazing. There was yeah. a wonderful video. There was a wonderful video that you had posted recently in a tweet uh, from Slovakia that was talking about this of gaining water uh, through dew. And it made me look more at dew and think and realize that really, I think dew needs a theme song like Mighty Mouse because it really does seem like 
the uh, was that the far there was footage and I I think it was from I don't know if it was from that tweet or from someplace else where there was a farm where they were they collected most of their got most of their water they were restoring a piece of land and they showed how they were they showed a bunch of green footage of you know plants and dew being gathered and they were gathered enough they had it drip into a tank and an underground tank and they saved it and I remember the footage of a gentleman in rubbery boots going out and filling getting water out of the hole where the chickens and the other animals came to feed out of this thing in the ground where they were taking the reserve water and just pumping it into that hole in the ground for the animals. And he was also using it to water the plants and do some other things, water the bread for the ducks. And it was just extraordinary that dew does seem like it is really a superhero. Not that everything else isn't important. It's just that dew seems like kind of a sleeper, like, oh, it's just dew. That's what that, what's that? It's just little droplets of water. Yes, but when they all hold hands, it's a lot of water. It's amazing. I think dew is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean that was that was a revelation as I was as I was writing this, and I remember talking to um, a farmer who said that dew is the most predictable moisture and therefore the most important because you can hmm. plan for it. I also learned that the healthier the plants, better and more dependable the dew. And the way um, a um, farmer rancher in Australia puts it is that he said that if you can like have, like if, if the microorganisms get an extra watering that allows them to stay active during the day longer. So, yeah. So, um, Catherine and Marcus, um, what they also did was they planted their small um, amount of um, kind of kitchen garden crops. They planted it at at the side where it would stay coolest into the day so it would have dew. The dew would stay on the plants longer. So, you know, once you start working with these water processes, it's amazing. It, it, it really is. And it's all out there. You know, it's not like anyone just discovered that moisture condenses. It's just no one had, few people had put that front and center. Although I do know that there are people, you know, there are projects um, in extremely dry areas, like in the Atacama Desert, where they're in um, South America, where they are experimenting with fog nets, mm. but you, yeah, it's it's all out there, you know. There's moisture in the air, and we can work with it. It makes me flash back to growing up as a child in the Monterey Peninsula and going out in the mornings. And it didn't rain that much, but we lived. We had pine trees all around, and you'd go out in the morning and you covered the car car would be covered with drops of water and it was always annoying like and it didn't rain yes it was foggy but the fog fog would gather on the trees and then drip on your car and that now at this moment is a flashback of like oh do the magic of do and if we had gathered that water we could have watered the entire garden which was mostly decorative but the my family could have watered our garden just collecting dew water i mean it's i think it's amazing Yeah, well, interesting you should mention that because in coastal California, many of those trees are designed to kind of comb the moisture from the, from the fog. So Mm. that's what they, that's what they do. And yeah, um, yeah, another Australian person who works with water does talk about that, that there are lots of plants that are kind of designed that way. So, yeah, if it, when, we, when we pause and we ask how things work, like how does water work, um, yeah, we learn a lot. And we learn a lot that can have implications and applications for us. And is that, is that a characteristic, do you know, of the redwood trees, which live here yes. for hundreds of years? And look, I'm always happy. They're always like, we're fine. We'll be fine. Just leave us alone. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. There's some really wonderful groves of 
150-year-old redwood trees not far from here. And you go in to those forests, and not only you have a wonderful characteristic of all the wonderful odors and esters and everything that come from the trees, but also the soil. I'm kind of like a dog. I really like the smelliness of the planet. And it's just extraordinary to go in amongst the redwood trees, how no matter who it is, typically, there's some people that can't stop talking. But for the most part, everybody gets kind of quiet because it's just this overwhelming sense of we've been here for a long time, we've survived the fires, and if they give us a chance, we'll collect water for you. They're not saying that, but it's just the idea that, wow, if we only knew. It's amazing. Yes, and, it is. And I'm going to jump to, I, I don't remember where, I wrote this line down because I wanted to ask you about it. Someone you were working with or did research with said desert is a place where it floods every time it rains. Yes. Have a reference there? Okay, great. I do. What is that? And that sounds bad. <laughs> so this is really interesting because remember I said that one can create abundance even in the most extreme conditions? Uh-huh. This is where the, this comes from a story of extreme conditions. So the, the quote comes from a guy named Neil Spackman who spent, I guess, close to 10 years, I guess about, well, yeah, maybe it was six or seven, something like that, years in a very extreme environment, specifically Western Saudi Arabia. So Hmm. he knew Arabic. He had studied that in college. And so he was asked to join a project. It was a poverty reduction project with Bedouin communities in Western Saudi Arabia because the Bedouin, unfortunately, were no longer, for many, many reasons, they were no longer able to live their nomadic life in this region. And they were settled in um, kind of concrete buildings and we're not doing so well, which kind of makes sense when you have people for thousands of years have lived a certain way and then you kind of put them in concrete blocks. That's not necessarily going to go very well. So this was going working with these communities. And Neil, who had done a lot of research on natural buildings, said, I would like to add a, an ecological component to this project and the organizer said, okay, that makes sense. So Neil fast-tracked a permaculture design course, worked with Jeff Lawton, who famously designed a food forest in the Jordanian desert. And they picked the site and they started working on this land. So this is incredibly, incredibly barren land that was lacking trees, lacking life. So what Neil did is he got together a team of the local Bedouin and they started collecting water. Because, so this is a really dry area. However, it did get some rain. Now there were years when it didn't, but sometimes they did get rain. And when it rained, it flooded. So that is why Neil said a mm. desert is a place where when it rains, it floods. So, yeah, in, in this region, when it rained, not only would it flood, but the floods would be very destructive because it would move because the soil wasn't alive. It would, you know, rush the sandy dirt off and that would you know cause its own problems so it's actually amazing what they were able to do so what they did was they started putting in earthworks to collect the rain so they planned for the rain and Mm. they did all kinds of earthworks swales and berms and little kind of you know rock structures and then did rain they would capture the water 
and they would start to go out and plant. They used that for irrigation. They would plant. And it is unbelievable the changes that happened in that system. I mean, you know, the photos are unbelievable. In fact, I really would encourage listeners to look at a film of it. Um, it's the Al-Beda um, I can't remember exactly how it's spelled right now. I know there's a Y and I think there's an H somewhere, but <laughs> you can also look up Neil Spackman, um, N-E-A-L Spackman. And I mean, you know, there, there's a photo that I often use when I'm giving presentations and I use that quote, a desert is where when it rains, it floods. And there's a photo of, of, like, you know, vibrant grasses around one of the rock structures. And, you know, you would not guess it's, that it's a desert because the amazing thing is that when you create the conditions to hold water on the land, like Neil and his team were able to do, it's no longer a desert. Because hmm. when you have those plants growing and the water staying in the land and the microorganisms are um, working and alive and they're moving carbon around and nutrients. And then the grasses, you get higher order grasses that are going deeper into the soil and stabilizing the soil and moving carbon deeper into the soil. And you get mycorrhizal networks building. Guess what? Even though you're in Western Saudi Arabia, it's not a desert. Now, granted, this might be a, you know, 100 hectares, you know, square hectare site. So it's not that large, but you can do it. And that's amazing. And I'll just tell you one other, a couple of other things about that, about how as they, the land was improving, Neil said that he started seeing ants everywhere. And mm. that, um, at, that at first when he got there, when it rained, there would be one variety of mushroom. Then there were five varieties of mushrooms. And the biodiversity just, I mean, he could see it, which is amazing. And then the one more thing, and then, and then I'll, I'll, you know, we'll move on to something else. So, you know, whatever, whatever's on your list, we can go there. Um, the other thing is that they planted trees and the, the trees were starting to thrive. And that was really exciting because it was only, you know, six or seven years. And I think it was even fewer. So in 2016, the project ran out of funds. And so they had to stop the irrigation. And Neil's reaction was, oh, well, that's kind of a bummer. But in permaculture, the ideal is to create a self-sustaining system. So he left and, you know, moved on to other things and came back in 2019. And even though I think there was like something like only a half centimeter of rain over about two and a half years, I mean, it was something mm. crazy like that. 80% of the trees survived. Wow. Is that extraordinary? That's because amazing. They, because they were able to change the conditions, the underlying conditions. And that's where we have a lot more agency than we think we do. That's extraordinary. Then I'm having a long pause because this is going to be a, a deep dive in my mind. Is there a way in your mind that we can bring this into the industrial ag sector in some way, having grown up around the Salinas Valley? where I watched water intrusion, the, the farmers for decades were allowed to pump water without meters. And so that they just pump whatever they wanted. And they pumped on the aquifers so hard that they started to have saltwater intrusion into the Valley of Salinas, which is uh, 40 to 50 miles from the ocean. And one of the solutions, this is when I first got into being really interested in the environmental realms, uh, one of the first things I heard about is that they were starting then, this was a long time ago, they were starting working with tomatoes and mackerel genes, mackerel being an oily fish, coastal fish, to make the tomatoes more tolerant to saline water. 
So they could, rather than fix the issue, they were like, let's change the product. So they were doing early, before CRISPR was even invented, they were doing those kinds of experiments to, to air quotes, correct for the issue. Is there, a, is there a way or a thing or a, I don't know what the words are, some way, I have watched billions of gallons of water just be sprayed by these giant guns that irrigate areas. So you're causing evaporation, which is okay, good, but you're not being particularly effective. And even in the days when they would make rows and rows and rows and you'd see people in the field taking, you know, flooding one, irrigate, irrigating one area, then moving the pipes over and irrigating the next area. It just never made sense compared to a garden like what you're talking about, which is somewhat what I would call self-winding. Once it's established, it begins, continues to thrive. Whereas in the agricultural world that I've seen, if you don't continue to nutrify it, and also because it's a factory farming kind of thing, you're also stripping all the stuff out of the soils, not really nutrifying it, not really developing microbiome, all of that. Pick any of those, if you would, please. Well... I can say pretty clearly um, I'm not a fan of industrial agriculture, and we can look at that from a water standpoint in many ways. Um, Well, what it's doing to the water, you know, with the chemicals, that's Mm -hmm. a concern. Then in a very basic way, when you talked about about spraying all that water and it it evaporates, well, yeah, um, you're not holding the water in the ground. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a there's a phrase that um, I find really useful. Um, so, we're thinking about rainfall, effective rainfall. This is a phrase. This is what Alan Savory, who developed the holistic management um, framework, talks talks about that, because you can have a lot of rain, and if you're not holding it in the ground, well, then you'll find yourself back in drought mode pretty quickly. And when you describe this, this use, or perhaps we could say abuse of water, you know, taking water that's, you know, under in aquifers and pumping it and, you know, spraying it in a large scale way. And then it goes, then it evaporates. Um, that's thinking of water as a noun and not a verb. Because mm-hmm. if you look at it as a verb, what is this water doing? How might this water win? <laughs> um, yeah, no one's winning there because the economics of it is skewed. I mean, if, the, if that is economical, if that's earning more money, you know, if, if that's profitable, then something's wrong with our economic model. Because it's not taking, it's not taking um, our resources and our, it's not taking nature, water mm-hmm. and soil into consideration. It's mm-hmm. externalizing them from the equation, and that can only be done so long. So yeah, I would say that industrial agriculture is only profitable because of distortions in our economic assessments. Mm-hmm. Which leads us to not talking about GMOs because that would be a whole other show. Um, but I yeah, will say, yeah, I can say I'm not a fan. I have another bad string of words about those. Um, that I live in Sonoma County where Sonoma state is again, I had moved away for years and, uh, and I'm back again. And it's fascinating to me how when I was at Sonoma state in the seventies and I lived in Sonoma County for much of the seventies, Middle of the 80s. It rained like heck. A bigger word, but I'll use that one. I mean, it rained just amazing amounts of rain. 40 years later? Really? Wow, that's spooky. Maybe even more. It's, we're in drought conditions. Sonoma County, a large county, is in drought conditions. The reservoirs out toward the coast in Marin, where a lot of the reservoirs are, are low. And there's not rain like there used to be here. Now, it is 40 years ago, but even so, I think it's because of the, you know, the overpaving, just everything that we've done. Well, for my, my example of talking about Sonoma State, which used to be in the middle of a field, cows wandering around and earth, 
and when it rained, it would go into the earth and do its work. And the fields were vital. Now everything's paved. The water goes someplace it doesn't need to be or isn't serving us. And we're in drought conditions here. Now this is a lot of happening in a lot of California, which this is a side, kind of a sidebar question, but it's in the same area. Isn't the earth a closed loop system, meaning that all the water that we've ever had is here, that we really are drinking Cleopatra's bath water? That's a question. Yeah. Earth is a closed system with input only from the sun. Yeah. So all the water is still here. It's just not here. I'm talking about California at this moment, but it's someplace else. It's not, it's not disappearing into the atmosphere. Maybe a a tiny percentage, I gather, I guess. But it's cycling. It's, it's moving. Yeah. Um, You know, the lack of rain, it's, there's, I mean, I can share some theories. Please. Um, Yeah. So, okay, a couple of things. There's a really powerful theory that is increasingly being borne out. And it Mm. is called the biotic pump theory. Mm. And this is about how, okay, so now we're talking about the water process of transpiration. That is the upward movement of water, of moisture through plants. And trees are pulling up moisture and they're emitting it. And trees are also emitting um, aerosols and so a lot of vegetation, okay, so here's a, this is a little bit on, on, on the side. A lot of vegetation is putting out bacteria and aer- other aerosols that actually seed clouds. So that's a factor, that plants create their own rain in, in that aspect, okay, because, because every raindrop has to, has to form around something. Okay, so precipitation nuclei. So that's something from nature that brings that moisture back down as rain. But the biotic pump theory, it, so that all in a forest, in a natural forest, all of those trees transpiring creates a low pressure zone which pulls in moisture originally from the coast. And science has shown us that a huge percentage of rain that falls, even inland, is from plant transpiration. So we need plants, particularly trees, to have precipitation. So the biotic pump talks about it in a sense so that you know, there's also moisture cycling above the ocean. And so you get almost this tug of war between the forests and the ocean. And the forest needs to be intact enough to pull that moisture inland. And one aspect of profound concern is that the Amazon rainforest is a huge moisture pump. And if that no longer functions as a moisture pump, that's, that's kind of a concern. And back in 2014, when I was interviewing someone named, Anton- a scientist in Brazil named Antonio Nobre, he talked about how it could flip from a rainforest ecosystem to a savanna ecosystem, a kind of dry land savanna. And sure enough, people are talking about that now. Um, So, yeah, um, I wish these conversations had been more in the public earlier, but we can talk about them now and we can really pay attention. And there's, Antonio Nobre wrote this 
incredible report called The Future Climate of Amazonia. And anyone who's interested, it, it explains the biotic pump. It explains how, how trees, and particularly the trees and the rainforest, create their own rain and all of these dynamics. It's a beautiful piece of work. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a really important piece of work, too. So then another factor, which I don't know, I, I, I mean, I, I haven't really talked about this much, so I don't know how coherence was found, but when you have a hot plate, you know, a, when you have kind of, a, um, you know, an urban, I'm trying to think of what is the term, um, you know, like a very a heated area that's dried out, you know, then the soil is desiccated and maybe this is, you know, dried out bare soil combined with urban, um, or, um, you know, covered up, um, you know, parking lots and mm-hmm. highways, et cetera, et cetera. And you get this kind of heat dome effect also in the middle of the country when you have dried out, desertified um, land that's no longer productive. So you get this heat dome and that repels moisture. And that's mm. really important to know Yikes. too. Yeah. But the, the, it's important to know because we can do something about it. We can, if we can revegetate this area in Western Saudi Arabia, we can do the same in Western Kansas. Um, and mm-hmm. in fact, I, I have colleagues that are working on this in Western Kansas. They are um, doing regenerative grazing. Um, in, it's a company called the Provenance Company. They're doing regenerative raising, grazing to bring back the prairie. And when you bring back the prairie, you are bringing back the water function. Whenever, you're, whenever you are regenerating landscapes, you're regenerating the water cycle. And then whenever you regenerate the water cycle, you're creating the conditions to regenerate the landscape. So it all works together. Back to the reservoirs in West Marin that are dry-ish, lower than I've ever seen them. There are what I call bucolic cows out walking around on the hills. And many of those cows are from a group called Temple Farms that grows, raises grass-fed, grass-finished beef, so no grains ever. They just wander around and they eat grass and wander around and fertilize the soil. And every winter when it does, when it did rain, and when it does rain, the hills suddenly are like green, like they're out of a Disney film. They're just like green, and I call it Sonoma County Green, because it's just a mind-blowing color of vital, vibrant soils. And that's how they raise their cattle. They move them to an area. There's actually wonderful footage of one of the workers and they go out and they move the cows around to areas and they, they control them, air quotes control them, by putting sticks in the ground with twine. And the cows know, okay, this is where we are for the next couple of days. And they just feed in that area. And then they come out and they move the cows, kind of like move them along, and move them to another area. So they're not just grazing randomly, they're grazing in areas. And obviously they're pooping in that area and then that gets worked into the soils. And the soil is stunningly vital. So when we do get rain, it's amazing to see that kind of vitality just from that act. Cows wandering around, doing their thing, animals being involved in the relationship of wandering around the hills like it is in real farms with air quotes hippies I've known, where they have animals and goats and sheep wandering around. Even here, there are areas here that's way too many vineyards. I like wine, but there are way too many vineyards. And now the vineyards are starting to have sheep wander amongst the vineyards because they found that A, they take care of the weeds, and B, they've actually improved the taste or the finish on the palate of the wine, and I think it's due to minerality and other characteristics, but they've actually liked the result of having sheep wandering around their vines. So it's it's tiny moments of, I'll call it infiltration, into industries where they might not think of it that they're having that effect. They think they're just taking care of the weeds, but the wine people that I know are actually saying, oh, no, we've noticed a shift in flavor how it finishes on the palate and all those wine terms. So it's, it's amazing to see it happen, but I'd like to see a lot more of it, more of this. I think it was in the Zimbabwe 
group where you talked about they brought in, you had a particular, there was something, and I think it, I thought it was in Zomboy, there were bulls that you really liked. Because there were these big, like, ancient being bulls, like, yeah, what are you looking at? And just being part of the environment, being part of the area. And they bring back vitality to that area. Yeah, because our landscapes all co-evolved with animals. And so to remove them or to to manage them in a way that isn't the way that they functioned in nature. Um, yeah, it, they, it can't be the same, but when we bring the animals back and manage them properly, then everything benefits the soil. As you said, the taste of the wine. So the quality of the grapes and the aesthetic effect and the, water cycle working and all of it. We are all actually in an ecosystem. I know it's radical. We don't want to be, or some people don't want to be. I really like being in ecosystems. I grew up in an area where I went out hiking. We'd go out hiking in the Ventana wilderness, which is the large forested area between sort of like Big Sur to almost LA. And we'd go out hiking as, as kids for two weeks to six weeks, literally out in not car camping, not glamping, backpacks, hiking in the woods. And it was just spectacular. It was just an amazing thing. I still to this day remember the, the taste of spring water coming out of the earth, coming out of the earth. Nobody drilled a hole. It just was like, I'm coming out here. It was extraordinary. But it was all in relationship. It was all animals did their thing. You know, yes, some things ate some other things, but it all worked. It was an actual system that is in relationship to itself. I don't think I can work that into a question. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> well, I will just say that recognizing that and being around animals and noticing how they function and appreciating their connection to the land and to the plants, you know, kind of, yeah, being with that understanding, it's a lot less lonely when it's always in good company. And even in my small way with working on, on our land to try to create better habitat for at-risk native pollinators, mm. you know, I feel that. So it's any opportunity to be in relation to our landscapes, I think, feels better because that's how we evolved too. Been around farmers where they, where they unconsciously as they're working through their fields or you know, working their fields and walking through their fields and they'll inevitably reach down and they'll run the thing through their hand and they'll smell their hand and it's all an unconscious thing. And you know that they're taking the intake of their, they're thinking about it. Feels moist enough, if it feels right, they're actually in relationship with the plants they're growing. These are people who are growing permaculture or biodynamic or all those wonderful words of being in relationship to what you're growing, not just being like, I will dominate. It's extraordinary to be in relationship with what you grow and the food. I'm I'm a big, I'm an advocate of farmer's markets because I really like to see the people that are growing my food. I like the people that hand me bags of produce to have dirt under their nails. And I mean that in the best of ways. I completely agree. <laughs> I can't believe that we got here. We're at the point where I want to ask you, where would you like people to find out more about your work and where would you like people to find your books? Yeah. So, so book wise, I always encourage people to go to local independent bookstores and it should be available. You could order it. You know, I, I mean, obviously Independent bookstores can't just stock everything, but, you know, it, it is available. And people can find me via my website, which is very simple, just plain old judithdschwartz.com. Great. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. I knew it was going to be fun, and it was even more than I thought we would do. It was great. Thank you so much, Judith. That was wonderful. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Everybody have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.